Welcome back to Voicecraft. This is a very special conversation about transformative philosophy, or the philosophy of no philosophy, as playfully explored by the philosophers, writers, parents, farmers, and wedding venue hosting duo O.G. Rose, husband and wife Daniel and Michelle Garner. Daniel has been part of several podcasts released on this channel, beginning with the Philosophy of Black series with Alex Eber and Cadell Last, and most recently in a conversation titled The Philosophy of Voice. The conversation you're about to hear was released by O.G. Rose a few weeks ago, but it feels like the perfect conversation to publish on Voicecraft for a bunch of reasons, not least because it's high time to welcome Michelle into the Voicecraft context as the other half of O.G. Rose. But if you listened to last episode's conversation between Cam Duffy and Ethan Wells, you'll know that this project is more regularly looking to include contributions from its network members on the podcast. Daniel, in particular, has become a core contributor to the network and I hope a collaborator for many years to come. He's also set to lead a module on the phenomenology of voice in the Voicecraft Academy course in Transformative Philosophy, which was initially scheduled to begin October 10, but which has now been postponed to next year. The exact dates of that are still to be confirmed, but it's likely to take place in the second quarter of 2023. You can still go to voicecraft.io slash academy to learn about what the course is likely to offer and fill out a short application form to be part of the course next year. So keep that in mind when listening to what follows as there are several nods to the course which very much apply, just to a different time frame. I share more about the course postponement in the Substack post that will accompany this episode. You can sign up to that at the website voicecraft.io. And so... I hope you enjoy this conversation that follows as much as I did, and if you do, please share it, because I think it's a conversation that deserves listening to. It comes with real invitations to participate, not only in the form of a course, but more fundamentally in the context of a network of people in deep resonance with the spirit of address you're about to hear. And please know, you can also go to the show notes for links to Daniel, Michelle, and their work as OG Rose. They have plenty of excellent podcasts, videos, writings, as well as a recently published book titled Thoughts. It's all brilliant work by people whose journey I look forward to continue seeing unfold. Okay, here we go. Michelle. Daniel. OG Rose. Today we're going to be talking about transformative philosophy. Transformative philosophy, which is in honor of the Voicecraft class that is starting October 10th. Very exciting, and it's going to be taught by a great cohort of different people. Different people. And Daniel Miller and O.G. Rose and Layman, Tim, uh, Christopher. That's so, Layman Pascal's going to be yeah, there. Yeah, Layman's going to be the integral stage, so that's neat. Yeah. And uh, so it's looking uh, very, very exciting, so it's cool to be part of it. Mm-hmm. If you haven't watched the video, Tim has a great video on it's the amazing. class. Uh, yeah, on the YouTube. Artistic, yes. His artistic it's insane. insane. So beautiful. So it's really, really So yeah, beautiful. go check that on Voicecraft YouTube channel. But it's an interesting concept, transformative philosophy. So what do you think about when you hear the phrase transformative philosophy? Well... I, I think about a philosophy that can maybe actually change something for mm. you or mm. change your life. And so I think that's an interesting. I mean, I always think words are fascinating because mm. then it's kind of like, you know, transforming or tra- transformative. 
you know, it's like, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of thinking about what is formative, you know, mm. and this idea that formative, what is formative ends up being a lot of times the trans transitions or transitory, you know, things that you go through in your life, you know, in birthing, there's like transition is one of the major points in labor, mm. you know, when you go from contracting to dilate till you're fully dilated to push the baby out. So, mm. so I think there's something about about that idea, this this idea of movement being very integral in what is formative ultimately, which is strange because mm. sometimes formative feels very certain and structured and solid. Mm. So mm. I think that's a great word. And then we think about that in conjunction with, you know, the love of wisdom or the seeking of wisdom philosophy. Mm. That's interesting. There is a way in which uh, transform has form, which you think rigid, you, f you think structure, but transitional form, a form that is changing, kind of like a river, like water Heraclitus sort of thing. So transformative, the structure, like metaphorically transform feels like water. And you mentioned birth and that's associated with water. And also Socrates referred to himself as a kind of midwife. You know, he's helping yeah. birth ideas in different things. And there's a way, it's interesting because there's both a sense in which ideas are not practical at all. And then you hear things like, you know, you only control your thoughts or control your mind or battlefield of your mind as if your mind is the most important thing on planet Earth. That all change starts in the mind. Mm -hmm. But then there's another way in which it's like ideas don't do anything and it's kind of, mm -hmm. or, or they're, or they're strange. And then you have, you know, this way in which there's a danger kind of, you know, like Walker Percy makes, uh, he warns and kind of makes fun in his book, uh, Lost the, in the Cosmos, about the self-help industry, where they, you know, read these 10 simple rules to change your life and whatever. And <laughs> some of that can be very problematic. And so there's a danger in presenting philosophy as a self-help book because there's something about philosophy that, um, well, you know, can uh, force you to face your demons and have a uh, kind of great difficulty and disillusionment. And Johannes was talking about that, where any philosophy, you know, any transformative philosophy that presents itself as a self-help book without any challenge, uh, that there's some dangers in that. Uh, but then at the same time, there's a very real way in which the whole reason you study philosophy is because you feel a transformation that occurs thanks to it or it changes yes, your view yes. of the world. So it's interesting to think of those tensions, yes. which... I find fascinating because, like, you don't see those tensions and say the idea of you need to eat well or you need to go exercise. It's, like, pretty, like, clear that <laughs> if you exercise, there will be benefits to it, <laughs> where if you eat better, there will be benefits to it. But, but what's very interesting is the nature of this kind of transformative philosophy or the notion of philosophy being transformative seeming true and then at the same time not seeming true. And as it seemed at one in one sense, it seems optional, and in another sense, it doesn't seem um, it doesn't it seems utterly critical. And it's yeah. interesting how philosophy has that tension yeah. about it. It certainly does. Yeah, like there can be this sense of like, well, you know, well, if you're if you're wanting philosophy to change your life, you're like using it or right. something, which is strange. It's like, well, no, we like you're saying, we don't think about that in, in what we consume or what we you know, what other things that we use right. our time toward or, or take in, right? right. Um, because it's all a type of taking in, you take in your food, you take in mm. what you're learning about. Mm -hmm. So, um, but at the same time, it's like, well, why, but, but isn't there, isn't that, isn't that the point? Like, is it, is it mere, is it just mere enjoyment? I mean, it's right. like that, and that's, that's, I think that though the idea that it can change you, it, it will change you. Everything does, right? Everything does sort of do mm. some some sort of, make change. some sort of impact or change, sure. you know? Um, 
you are what you eat, right? So sure, what, sure. What, what are you eating? What are you taking in? What are mm. you consuming? Mm. Um, it's so funny. Like, I just think it's so funny. We always kind of get this like big aversion to being consumers and I get it. I get sure. it from the, from sure. the, you know, the idea of market capture and sure. such. That's, yeah. that's very real. Why is it real? It's because we are consumers. We consume food. We consume Absolutely. each other's time. We consume books. You know. Absolutely. So it's really short. It's it's more about the. I think what exactly is it that we are consuming? How are we consuming it? Um, I think that transformative philosophy is going to look at both the the what and the how. Absolutely. You know, and I love that about VoiceCraft that they do really. They are very intentional with with the how. Absolutely. And description in, in placement and phenomenology. Absolutely. And that's why I think like it's, it's, you know, it's funny cause like I was thinking a lot lately about self-help, the culture and like the self-help mentality. And I was thinking about how like we, we like, we tend to like self-help because we don't like to actually ask for help from others. <laughs> you know, it's much easier to quietly go and get your self-help book and take it back to your quiet mm. isolation and read mm. it. But you'll also feel the frustration of perhaps not really, you know, feeling empowered for a time. Mm. But then you're, you don't, you know, you feel like, well, this, this feels frustrating because I actually didn't get to execute the change I wanted to see through this book. Now, you did actually receive the words of that book sure. from another person, okay? But it's much, it's much less vulnerable than having to proclaim your need to another person or, sure. or receive, actually literally receive like a baby help mm. from another person. Mm. And um, Rivera has a great kind of wording for this about this idea that you don't do change, you receive change, mm. which I think is very important. But it's almost like, what is it exactly that we are allowing ourselves to receive, mm. you know? And I think perhaps it's almost like somehow strangely, phenomenologically, a requirement to sort of put yourself out there, you know, and present yourself um, so that you can almost be seen in your need and your helplessness to be able to actually receive, to actually receive something. Well, that's a very interesting framing. So a few things. Um, one, I think it's very true that you can't escape consuming. The issue, I think, you know, obviously what people mean when they talk about consumerism, sure. it's the eating and not giving back or not yeah, creating. Mere consumption. Mere consumption mm -hmm. is what they mean. You know, mere entertainment, mere just kind of uh, sitting back and having uh, the TV feed, Netflix feed you the grapes of someone's creative <laughs> uh, toil and sweat or whatever. And, and that actually would be another subject, but there's something about consumerism that actually can kind of make, it kind of creates, it's weird because it creates a culture of kind of creative judgment where people just like sit and say, oh, it was a good show. Oh, it was okay. Yo, I like that song. And there's like the people who made it could have poured like 10 years into it. <laughs> you know, Probably great, did. <laughs> probably did and great sacrifice. <laughs> and there's a way in which one of the problems with consumerism, with mere consumerism is actually it can create a culture of judgment without appreciation of work, which is weird because capitalism is at the same time pr oh, productivity yeah. obsessed. Yeah. And that's another thing, like on that topic, it's interesting to note that a lot of the, so a, lot, a problem with a lot of the self-help is like, it does seem to just feed how to be a good capitalist, right? Like how to <laughs> like, I guess that super popular book now is Atomic Habits or something, uh, which don't get me wrong, this notion of like, you change bad habits by very small steps. I think that's a Japanese idea. It, I mean, that's very good advice, but then the question becomes like, okay, so you've learned, you've mastered the art of atomic habits. What mm -hmm. for? You know, and yeah. philosophy would make you ask, what for? And it's like, mm -hmm. right, just so you can be like, climb the corporate ladder and do what? You know, mm -hmm. and, and you see, that's where philosophy 
when we're talking about transformation, has this disillusioning. It makes you ask, what for? And it can be frightening in that way. And you're like, oh my gosh, what is it for? And it makes you realize the potential arbitrariness of climbing the corporate ladder and different things like that. And that's why it is important to always realize that if philosophy transform you, it has to like destabilize you. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems, I guess you could say this, one of the problems with a lot of self-help work is it doesn't destabilize you. Like it doesn't existentially destabilize you. Like for example, you already know that you don't see through your goals and you're getting a <laughs> self-help book to help you figure out why you don't. Like there's no like awakening. There's no like shattering your world, making the earth feel unchained by the sun, sort of God is dead, parable of the madman moment. It's like you know <laughs> that you don't stick to your diet. So let me get a self-help book for how to do it. And that's where it is important to realize that in, in, in whatever sense philosophy entails a self-help ethos, it is not the same. It is part of like realizing that, oh my goodness, my very framework by which I'm taking in life may not be correct. Mm-hmm. And how do I see if it, maybe it is correct, but I need to examine it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you were saying, and I'll, you know, before giving it back to you on this idea of real transformation has to be received, I think that's something I appreciate about Voicecraft is because everything is about basically, it's in relation. Like mm-hmm. there's a certain mm-hmm. sort of like, how do you deal with your nervous system in breathing? Like I think Johnny works on is like how to be able to emotionally and psychologically position yourself to receive yeah. and to be yeah. present. Present. Like, and that's the thing, you know, uh, presence, right? There's mm-hmm. this real sense of like before you actually are seen in your helplessness. The, 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 the one risk with self-help books is you just stay in your isolation. Yes. Yes. You don't have to be seen in your helplessness. Nobody knows about it. That's I'm correct. not saying that you should like broadcast all of your stuff, but mm-hmm. like, or things you're, that you struggle with. But, but there's this real sense in which, uh, it's not really going to the fullness of help of the helplessness, which is to sort of like you're talking about with what Johnny would probably get be getting into this this actual presence, oh, yes. you know, it's almost like if you're going to receive the presence, you have to also offer your full presence. And there's, a, there's something about kind of coming out of the cave, sort of like, Oh, sure. Like being able to come out and sort of, uh, be willing to be, yeah, again, it's like this sort of nakedness in a sense, I think. Well, what's interesting that, that, <laughs> that then like you actually, I don't know, somehow receive like your cloak or something like that. Well, just to add quickly, I I think it's, you know, Raymond has been talking about this and, we, you know, he has that great new book out on Notes from oh, the yeah. Pod, um, where he, you know, he really brought out the fact that, you know, in Plato's Republic, there's a whole lot of emphasis on the gymnasium and physical training and different things, almost as if there is a certain physical conditioning that one has to go through in order to be able to handle philosophical reasoning mm-hmm. and if we tie it to what johnny's doing it's kind of the idea that if you can't control your breathing and you can't control your nervous system then when the disillusionment and difficulty of philosophy sets in you won't be able to handle it mm-hmm. and you know with raymond a piece you know that came to mind is the notion that like if you're not healthy and this is like in the gymnasium where they're stressing health then you are kind of at the mercy of the expertise of the doctors and you can't think for yourself because unless you're a doctor how mm-hmm. can you know that subject well so there's a way in which plato is suggesting like you want to be moral because if you're not moral, you're at the mercy of the expertise of, say, the priest or the lawyers or whatever because mm-hmm. you're going to court. And if you're not healthy, you're at the mercy of the expertise of the doctor because you can't understand your own health very well unless you're skilled in that. So there's a way in which health helps you keep yourself in the position or situation where you can think for yourself mm-hmm. because you're because you're able to do that. You're not relying on outside authority. So there's a certain way you condition yourself to stay in the place where you can keep thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, likewise, there's a sense in which if you control your breathing, you control your nervous system, you control your emotions, 
you're able to then hold yourself in a manner to where you can enter in relationship and not be overwhelmed by difference or not be overwhelmed by their personality and like have a meltdown or something like that. And then what's interesting is it would seem like a lot, you know, a lot of the transformative philosophy that will be going on in the class is really kind of talking about the particular philosophical insights and ways of holding that do indeed emerge in relation. Like, like if you're doing like Dr. Lass on dialectical thinking, what's the relation between X and Y? You know, they're dialectically opposed. So there's a relation there that you're thinking through. You're not simply thinking in terms of, say, conservatism or liberalism, to make some random examples. But you say, okay, well, what is the essence of conservatism that has something to do with the essence of liberalism and how do they relate? There's a relation. We're talking about the phenomenology of voice. The only way that voice emerges in a manner that has a unique phenomenological experience that needs to be traced out is when you're talking with someone. When you're alone in the room and you're just talking to yourself, you don't have the same emotional experience as when you're talking to a person and you can't access their consciousness. You need the other person there to be a kind of canvas on which to explore the art of relationship and the experience of voice, of which, you know, as the class will get into, is, I think, philosophically extremely rich that particular phenomenological experience of the choice of saying something and responding to something mm -hmm. and indeed relations transform people profoundly arguably there's nothing that transforms you know arguably people's entire lives are mm -hmm. oriented and organized according to their relations and what yeah. they do and different things like that and so to talk about like to position philosophy in and out of relationships is, I think, very important. And that would be a posture of receiving because you're receiving the other. You're receiving that environment that is mm -hmm. created only with yeah. others and you can't find um, yourself. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's why this is a particularly unique and, you know, wonderful opportunity for people with this class because they, you know, they are, anyone who is going to be able to participate in it will be receiving the, the full presence of those who are, you know, sharing and, and teaching. And, um, I think, I think that that ability to kind of like literally be like eye to eye with one another is, is, is a very unique, like you're talking about a very unique experience of receiving. Mm. Um, like you're saying, possibly the only way we kind of truly receive it kind of reminds me a little bit of Boober and the whole yeah, being yeah, meeting, yeah. you know, and, well, I'd uh, say it's very booby. I mean, you mentioned Javier, but there's something very um, boobarian about boobarian because it's about a dress. You know, with the uh, a dress has a boobarian flavor to it. Absolutely. Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, it's yeah. I was um, it's interesting actually that the it's I was I was look I was looking through some particular scriptures recently, and there was like I I forgot that actually the temple that God had Moses established was not called a temple. It was called a tent of meeting. Mm. So that was very profound. It kind of stood out to me very, mm. very much. So when I, I was looking up at other passage, but it just like caught my eye. And yeah, it does seem to be like the meeting place that it's, it's funny because it's like, you know, I just love wordplay too much. Sure. Probably. No, it's okay. I, I do. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with words. I am. That's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, it's probably, yeah, it, it's, I, I like it. It's better than like a hardcore drug or something. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> Between the OED and heroin, it's probably... OED it's is like fine. the OED. Yeah, it's fine. It's great, though. Um, but I, I think that there's something there. There's something very substantial in a meeting. It's, it reminds me of the word, like, meat. Mm. You know, M-E-A-T. Yeah. There's something that, like, there's something to sink your teeth into, mm. you know, and, like, really chew, which is straight a strange language. And actually, this was something interesting that um, Tillis Bound said the other day. Like, he shared that... 
the word actually used at, by Christ when he, at the Last Supper mm. wasn't just like take, eat. It was like chew. It was a mm. very unique word that actually meant to like chew. It's mm. very hard to accept that word. Mm. Um, but I think at the same time, there's something about, you know, this idea of being able to like actually, you know, like the expression, you know, it's kind of like, I only need to chew on that. Yeah, chew on that. Right. right. Really, that makes you actually, makes you think, makes mm. you think. Mm. Um, and, you know, we kind of have like a, it's funny because our brains naturally want to mitigate thinking. Like if mm. we can avoid it, if we can reduce it. It's weird. It's like it, it, it both does and it doesn't want to. Like you say, the brain is kind of the frenemy. But right. the point of the matter is if we can if we can have these genuine meetings, we have like some sort of meat to chew on together. And I think that type of chewing on is, is very very thought provoking and that's that's really important because the thing is what we think is is precious. There are really beautiful things that people think often ideas and creations of their own that are overlooked and not stimulated, you know. Um, so I think I think this will be a great chance for people to also kind of get in touch with their own transformation, which is a creative process itself. Oh, ab absolutely. Well, the way you change yourself when you're alone in a room is different than how you change yourself around other people. Mm -hmm. And how you think about yourself is different around people than when you're by yourself. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Yes. Um, but then the question is, well, what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages? Well, if you ask that, you're now in philosophy. Mm -hmm. See, like, you can't even organize the benefits and <laughs> negatives of social interaction yep. or alone time, even. Like, without a philosophical structure, how do you create valuations? Like, the moment you get into valuations or saying, oh, that is good, well, it's very difficult to see how you, you can say that without engaging in philosophy unless it's just asserted. Like, sure, you can assert something is good, but that, that was the point that Socrates going to. He was like, oh, it's, so it's good to go try your dad? Like, what do you mean by good? What is mm -hmm. justice? Like, basically, philosophy, like, yeah, sure, you can go through your whole life asserting things. Philosophy is the realization that you asserted something, <laughs> you know, that you did not actually ground it. You just asserted it. Now, of course, it's kind of terrifying, again, to touch on that language when you really get how much you think by assertion not by actual earning or work or grounding there that opens up an entire you know hole an entire opening but you see basically i think it's becoming increasingly clear that if we don't open that up we can't open up to the other like it's the same act like you see today like how difficult in pluralism it is for diversity to not lead to plural you know basically uh social uprising totalization tribalism all that different stuff like well that's because people, when they say they open up to the other, they're not actually opening up to the other deeply, only on a very surface level. Well, the moment you say open up deep versus open up surface, well, what's that mean? Well, you're in philosophy. <laughs> like, you, can, it's very difficult to escape that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's really important. And yeah, and I think, I think that there, there is something quite quite powerful with with this idea of kind of like getting into the meta questions mm. that require philosophy and and then also the the realization that philosophy itself um the pursuit of it and i don't know i mean sure there's probably there, there's always there's always everything out there regarding like maybe there's some you know, little niche of philosophy that's like going to be like, no, no process. But sure. generally speaking, most philosophy honors a process of some yes. type, right? Um, 
because like love is always a process, right? If we think just again about the word itself, love of wisdom, you know, philosophy, it's, it's to love wisdom and love is always a process, right? Yes. Um, and so I guess what I mean to say is that I, I think what's, what's beautiful about like training and kind of becoming, feeling more confident actually in one's own ability to, to kind of get out there and philosophize, um, get out there intellectually, maybe even physically depending. It's, it's, it's very important because I think what, what it helps too is what it helps a person to do as well is to, um, accept the process, right? Accept, Mm. accept the fact that things, um, like there's an ebb and flow, you know, Mm. I think a lot of times without, when we don't acknowledge philosophy that does actually impact all of our thinking, like, as you know, it, there's going to be secondhand smoke philosophy, regardless, you, sure. whether you want to say we, you know, whether you want to think of it as like some abstract, you know, branch of study, or you want to recognize it as part of the everyday, um, it is still happening every day. Yeah. You, you are, you have y- you thoughts, ha- yeah. you have a philosophy, you, you cannot escape it. You do, you do. And you know, these when, when you're able to have like an awareness of the fact that you have, you do have thoughts and what, and how do you think, what, what are these toward all of those things, right? What is, you know, how, how are you mindful about them? Then I think that helps to, to understand that there, there's, there's an unfolding. Like, and the thing is, if you don't, then you end up kind of really wanting to, I don't know, it's like always feeling very rushed and urgent in your fixing in your, in your fixing. Mm. And don't get me wrong. There are things like, well, look, if, if, if something's on fire, yes, put it out, you know, but, but we treat so much like, because we have such immediacy today and such, Mm. you know, we have speed. That's a lot of what, what we Mm. have with technology today. We, we think of everything that way, you know, and we don't really allow sometimes for, for the unfolding. And I think sometimes I think philosophy keeps a suspension of judgment, which is good, you know, because you, Yes, you're going to have to be able to discern, right, or make assessments. But, you know, throwing down the gauntlet of judgment is very suffocating. Yes. And does not allow for the process. And it does not allow for the learning, the true learning, you know, and, and, but that can feel scary because then it's like, well, how long is this going to take? Or what did it, or like, you know, is this, it's kind of like what we talked about the other day with like getting a head cold or something. You kind of have to let it run its course. Yes. Well, you have to let things run their course sometimes in terms of what, whatever it is you're experiencing or going through or, you know, um, anyways, I just think that philosophy honors that so much. And in being able to get confident in your own ability to philosophize, you also will develop more of a, more of a, I want to say patience in a way or something, some sort of like respect for the process. Um, but also recognition of how you are able to, um, you know, be able to see yourself apart from like some of the things you so quickly identify yourself with. You know, yeah. well, so, so anyways, yeah, no, um, philosophy actually takes seriously that things are transforming, like a transformative right. philosophy sees life as like transforming and things changing and becoming. And so it wants to create space to allow that to occur, not to just rush in. Um, right. One of the, the reasons why philosophy should, should train you to have an open hand is because it realizes how serious judgment is. Like mm-hmm. if you say X is the case, well, you you have <laughs> you have made a that is a big big thing. You have literally said that the nature of reality corresponds with X. This is huge. Mm-hmm. You have basically made a move that a being like God makes. Mm-hmm. Like you have said X is true. 
Yeah, like or this, X is false. The, or X is false. This is an incredibly profound move. You are participating in the image and likeness of God in that act. You know, you are participating in the very ontological foundations of reality in that act. Are you so sure? Are you so eager? You know, there is a le there's a lesson in many religions of if you're going to call on the gods, that you know, the problem is they may answer. <laughs> you know, you, you know, there's this like, there's this real sense in which, you know, it, it's like you, you really have to take seriously if you're going to say, like, if you say, I believe in God. Right. Oh, you believe in God? <laughs> do you know what that means? Like, do you understand the gravity of a believing God? Well, you know, arguably, one of the problems with, one of the reasons why religion has been in decline is because it actually hasn't taken seriously what it means to believe in God. It's not that it stopped believing in God. It, it's there's a way in which it hasn't taken it with the, the real seriousness of what that means. Yeah. <laughs> and so similarly, like basically when you make a judgment, when you say this is what's going on, or that person is bad, or this is the way you should live your life, or whatever, you are basically tapping into a kind of ontological foundational power. And it is a big deal, and you should take it seriously. Yeah, see, that's really interesting. It makes me think of something I was thinking about this morning uh, regarding um, the no-self concept in Buddhism. Mm. And I actually think this is what a lot of it is, and I don't know, it's hard mm. sometimes with translation, sure, and sure. you know, you're talking a completely different culture and sure. understanding of the world, sure. um, but I almost want to say that it's not as if, it's not as if, um, well, I, I can't be sure, obviously, this is speculation, sure, sure. but I wonder if there's something about the no-self that is actually saying exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. We can't just throw the gauntlet down about what this, this, yes. this self Yes. Is that we have, we possess, we yes. kind of yes. are the vessels for. Yes. It's actually so, it's, it's, it's so, it's so mind boggling, yes. you know, that we, we, and that's why it's a no self. Yes. Because, because there's no words for it. it yes. And that, that's where I think there's something about this, where there's, there's a moreness in the knownness, you know? Yes. There's, there's something so much that you have to almost call it nothing. <laughs> yes. And that in the nothing, there's everything kind of thought. And that's why I think it's confusing because a lot of the language can just, it can just then makes, uh, it can reduce Buddhism to saying like, oh, it's just dismissing. Uh, it's, it's very dismissive or sure. even pessimistic about like, sure. you know, human thinking and human, you know, existence. And it's sure. like, no, no, it's, I think it's a much more robust understanding. And this also this recognition that we can't really say <laughs> Sure. And that's and that actually opens us up to much more possibility. Well, in meditation, it is not where you don't think. It's where you actually pay attention to thinking and going, Oh my gosh, my mind doesn't shut up. It's always <laughs> It's just going. this constant flow of like Um, oh my gosh, current. how do I have a how do I have any way of of stopping that? If you one of the most difficult things in the world is actually not to think. It is unbelievably hard not to think. Like, try it. Like, try right now to turn off your thoughts and not have it suddenly wander to thinking about the chair right there <laughs> or funny. the food right there. Like, it's, it's really hard. It's you're asking that. It's like, as you're still talking. Yeah. Like, yeah. How do you Expecting stop? people to go Well, that's what I'm heads. saying. Like, yeah. it's very, like, how do you, like, it is so mm. difficult to stop thinking. Yeah. Like, if you do it and somehow every time a thought, like, this is the tricky thing. Like, how do you stop a thought? without thinking about not thinking, without thinking about not thinking, and you enter into this kind of eternal regression, there's some way that you suspend your mind without the thought of suspending your mind. 
Mm. It's really crazy. Mm. And if you, in the act of trying to suspend your thoughts is actually opening you up to the radical power and constant flow of thinking because the effort of trying shows you that it's like really freaking hard. Like this is the thing. Like when we say, well, stop thinking, we act like that's so easy. Like what, what, what like in Buddhism, there's a deep understanding of how unbelievably difficult that is. Mm -hmm. And, and so likewise, it's very easy to judge. Like it's very hard to like suspend judgment precisely so that when you judge that X is true and you're summoning upon ontological foundations, you're doing it with reverence and likely to do it right. Like the, the Buddhist suspension of thought is so that when you think your thinking is in your control and you're honoring it and you're controlling it. Mm -hmm. um, it is not a saying of what you don't think. Basically, it's impossible. It's impossible to literally not think. If you literally are not thinking, you are dead. So the emphasis on the notion that likewise, it's impossible not to have something of which corresponds with Daniel L. Garner. You will have something like a self. The emphasis on the no self is to make you realize that whatever you think yourself is, is woefully small and inadequate compared to the wholeness of it. So it's the more wholeness, like the wholeness of it, yes. which is like, that's the other part too. That's the other part too, which is so funny because it's like, it's, it's, it's just why we can't like reduce, we can't reduce things to, you know, mere tokens of X or Y or Z, right? Because, well, I mean, because it's kind of like the no self is this concept of no fixed self because it is in such a, such an incredible mind boggling, you know, connection and symbiotic relationship, well, to, you know, to make the, the point more concrete, um, when I say to you, tell me what the world is, whatever answer you give will be so woefully pitiful compared to the wholeness of what the world is. Like if I were to ask you what happens on planet Earth, I bet you're just going to tell me stuff that kind of comes to mind or you've seen on TV or that links with your life. Like no one has ever even come probably within 0.01% of a full description of planet Earth. It would be more accurate to say that all we ever talk about is the no Earth. Or the no world, uh, because whatever we put forth is just such a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the mm -hmm. whole that it's more accurate to talk about the no self. It's very similar to negative theology or mysticism, mm -hmm. where when you talk about God and you say God is good, it's more accurate to say God is not good, even though there must be a way in which God is good. It's just that by the word good, you just can't even be close to what is mm -hmm. going on there. Mm -hmm. And so that, that I think is where you have to situate, say Buddhism. Buddhism is coming to terms with that, right. where practices of no selfness are kind of an honoring of the infinite excess uh, of the self or the infinite moreness mm -hmm. of being. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, you see, we can see this in terms of philosophy because what philosophy in academia has generally done has been a history of philosophy, which has been like the idea that you can never get the fullness of philosophy where there's a way in which transformative philosophy is where you move beyond just talking about the history of philosophy mm -hmm. to actually engaging in philosophy. And that's kind of like a no philosophy. <laughs> that's where you open yourself up to the non-philosophy mm -hmm. in this kind of Buddhist sense where the excess becomes predominant. And once the excess becomes predominant, it transforms you because you're like, oh my God, Gosh, everything is way bigger than I thought, which has a kind of a terror to it. But then that terror is precisely an opening up to the fullness. Like a real encounter with fullness almost always has to bring terror because it's the whole. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. And I think what's what's pretty powerful and amazing too, though, is in that in that same moment of terror, there seems to be this sudden realization of the fact that the world is really the world you know, right? Yes. And how how 
unique that it is that, that you have a particular understanding of the world from your perspective. Yes. So then it ends up being, yes, it's still like a no world in a sense, yes. but it's like that that's kind of the beauty of it. It's almost this little gem. Everybody has these little gems all over the Absolutely. world that then make this, this, this entirety no of an incomprehensible in parentheses. It's yeah. part of the whole exactly. and yet it doesn't equal the whole, but it's yeah. also not irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, oh gosh, I'm, I, I'm not even going to try now, but this is definitely reminiscent in like, you know, even in Sufism, I'm thinking about Rumi and like this idea of the, you know, it's like, um, the idea that like, um, it's like the ocean or are you the ocean? There's some, there's some, there's sure. some language of that. It's probably has something to do with like a teardrop and, but now, now I'm not, not recalling the exact language for it, but it's basically that idea. Like, you know, is the whole world out there or is the whole world like almost mm -hmm. within yourself? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think though it is this really, I think, I do think that there's this like a direction of, of a negation that Buddhism does very well, where it recognizes actually the, the fullness of everything that cannot be understood or comprehended. And you're there, you know, and sort of, and so in that way, it's like you're saying, it's like the no in front of the sea's world. Well, I mean, Tim Adlin with the voice, there's an emphasis, like there's talk, you know, in the video or there's the kind of imagery is kind of pointing to the subconscious, the archaeotechnical structures found in Jung, this kind of idea that there's this deep, deep world, or even when you will be sort of, sort of some of the psychedelic conversations and the idea that there's this whole, like fuller reality that be careful if you tap into it, but also if you don't tap into it, then why would you ever expect your life to be different? <laughs> you know, there's this, it's another funny idea that there's a way in which it's difficult to articulate why philosophy is transformative, but then there's another way in which it's hard to think of anything but philosophy as transformative. <laughs> like, like it's weird because it's like, how does trans does philosophy change your life? It's like yes. What else could, but then it's like hard to put into words, which mm -hmm. actually the, the very fact it's hard to put into words can be evidence that it is transformative. Like, mm -hmm. like the more difficult it is for someone like for, you know, the more difficult it is for, say, a Christian to tell you who Jesus is to them can be evidence of they've never, ever read the Bible or it can be evidence that they've had a true, deep, mystical experience of Jesus. <laughs> you know, right? Oh, this is good. This is good. Yeah, so what ends up happening is it's this weird thing where the inability to put into words is simultaneously a suggestion that there's nothing worth putting into words and a suggestion that there's something that's been encountered that's far greater than words. So likewise, to talk about the no-self can be evidence of never doing self-work or it can be work it can be evidence of doing so much self-work that you realize that the self is ultimately just great. It's always in excess of whatever thing you define. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. The idea of like, you know, if the person does, has a hard time describing yeah. Jesus and, yeah. you know, does that mean they've like never read the Bible really, but, right. or it doesn't mean they've had like actually a mystical encounter yeah. with Jesus. Um, it, that, that's, that's been kind of a question for me and thinking about self-help actually mm. is like, and, and thinking about this from a theological perspective, it's really funny, right? Because if you see somebody who seems to be doing something that's difficult, okay, yes. overcoming something or whatever, um, phenomenologically, they look exactly the same. Yes. They look exactly the same if they're doing it, quote unquote, in their own strength or if they're doing it in the strength of, you know, the Lord. The Lord right. And it's like... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's, that's, that's a very interesting because then phenomenologically, it's very difficult yes. to tell the difference between somebody overcoming in their own strength in sort of even maybe even a prideful way, or maybe not, maybe they're just doing it themselves sure. or they're doing it with like this divine aid. 
yes. or assistance, like through the Holy Spirit from a Christian perspective, you know? Sure. And so it's like, that's really, really, to me, very interesting. And, and I think it may, it's also why change is difficult. Yes. Because we don't have some sort of phenomenological cue of like, okay, now we're letting go and letting this, the spirit do it. You know what I mean? Or whatever. You can think of some other type of like force, you know, but that there's, there's not, there's now I will say that like, I guess from now, when we look on as people, we'll definitely not know. Okay. But sometimes in your own self, you can have, when you're closer to it, when you're, when it's happening to you or through you or whatever, it's, it's much easier to, to, yeah, it's not like you're like your skin's glowing, right? But there's some sort of strange, it is, it is a kind of supernatural or, or supernatural ability that suddenly you find in yourself that you're like, I really definitely didn't like, I, I couldn't do this myself, but somehow you're doing it yourself, but you're not doing it yourself because you're doing it with like this divine aid or assistance. So I, I just think this is very interesting because it we, because sometimes too, there can be like, there can be, um, for somebody who's desiring to possibly make some sort of change in their life or have some sort of transformative experience, it, it can fuel, I think there can also be the sense in which like, I'm just, I'm opening myself up. Like, sure. please, I'll, I'll, I'll take, like, I'll take it. I'll, I'll let it work it through me. And yet if, if for some reason it doesn't happen or something, what's, what's going on? Like, is the person mm-hmm. not open enough to, to receive it? Like what's, what's going on? I think there can be a deep sense of, of discouragement there. And so I wonder wh- what, what might be occurring? What, what are your thoughts, Daniel? Um, well, one of the things that philosophy teaches is that a lot of the great changes are in fact invisible. They are things that are not socially observable. And yet you also know that there's a way in which some of your deepest relationships are with people of whom get that you went through something invisible because they may have gone through it as well. And it, it may be never directly said, but there's a sense of it. And, the, and there's an intuition that this person has been through some of that change, that there's no um, social representation or social metrics by which to really get, or it's not very visible, but it, it completely transforms how they carry themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you run into people that have certain auras, right? They, you, you can encounter that there are people of whom is different. And yet, if you were to ask them, what did you do to be different? They may not be able, you know, be like, well, I did X, Y, and Z. But like, well, this other person did X, Y, and Z. Why, <laughs> why don't they have the aura or whatever, or this different way of being? Well, because a lot of the deepest changes are, in fact, inside. Like... Um, engaging in these meditative practices, which if you're, you know, to use that Buddhist example, if you're meditating, you look like you're sitting there doing nothing. And if you have one person who literally is doing nothing and another person who's engaged in a, like, true battlefield of the mind, learning to capture their thoughts, they phenomenologically look the same. Um, One of the reasons why self-help doesn't necessarily go where it needs to go is because it doesn't force you to ever engage in a task that only you know you're engaging in, which requires a... Um, for you to do something that you only you understand, the very willingness to undertake that task says a lot about you. Like, says a certain level of, like, bravery or facing yourself or being willing to do stuff that you don't know if it's going to work out and that other people may not understand. There's a certain bravery Mm -hmm. of which requires a certain kind of character to even be willing to engage in that. Mm -hmm. And to be willing to engage in something that other people may, in fact, view as a failure or a waste Mm -hmm. of time or different things like that. So there's something about 
if you are willing to do something that looks like you're doing nothing because you know that is the thing that's actually on a on a deeper level changing you there's a there's a risk it's like a form of risk taking that there's a deep social risk taking that you're taking that the very fact that you're willing to take that risk in in of itself is transformative yeah no that's that's really good that's really good and, and I, th I think too daniel something that came to mind as i was talking about this idea of the person who's like i'm open i'm open to receiving i'm, I'm open to receiving change or transformation i think i think too like something that could perhaps be a helpful thing to consider is that it's not done you know mm. it's still it's still it's like this is the idea of the process, right? It, we can't, if we think to ourselves like, well, I haven't changed yet in this manner or whatever. Well, don't, don't be so quick to throw that gauntlet down, right? It's, mm. it's like, you're still changing. Well, you're still I, changing. So uh, I just think. Absolutely. Kind of, well, yeah. um, a lot of people will indeed be open to changing and improvement if it will be socially validated and everyone can see that they're putting <laughs> in hard work to change. But mm. it's an entirely different matter. And I think very rare to have people that are willing to change and are open to change becoming if they're not going to receive any confirmation from other people or and, if it's, and, or if or it's not definite. Like a lot yeah, of or, or if it will be ridiculed, like you're saying, or it will yes. not be understood by people. A lot of philosophical change, there's no guarantees. Like, in fact, <laughs> there's no guarantee that engaging in philosophy will change your life. And in fact, it's precisely that lack of guarantee that's part of its transformative power. Hmm. Um, there's no guarantee if you put in 20 years to write a novel that that novel will get published and you'll be successful. And yet the very fact that it may not be the case um, has a transformative element to it. The willingness to go all in and to really work at something without guarantees is a transformative act. Hmm. One of the reasons, again, self-help, I don't think changes people deeply is because it doesn't have that level of risk. Whereas there is that level of risk in philosophy. You know, when you go into philosophy, you may have your entire worldview destroyed. You may have all your beliefs wrecked. And you may you know, become existentially destabilized and struggle to relate to, pe uh, to people at work and never come out of that. That's a very real possibility. Yeah. You know, Dante could have descended into the inferno, gotten swept into a temptation and never made it to Beatrice. That was a very real possibility. And yet there was no other way to get to Paradiso except through hell. That's where Virgil led him. Yeah. There's real risk. I, I mean, I think real risk, and I think the thing too is that always to see, just like you know, some of the church fathers and the um, uh, in the monastic tradition sort of talk about like the idea that it's actually through the through temptations that that one sort of develops more faith. You develops. don't develop by avoiding temptations, right? And the thing is, like, that's why if you're, it's kind of like, well, look, if you're on the battlefield, I'm not, I'm not trying sure. to like justify like falling into temptation, but the thing is, is like if you're on the battlefield you will get shrapnel like it's yes. like you're you're going to get yes. you're going to get hurt there's going to be some but don't get, you know don't give up i think the whole idea of like like you're saying somebody who's willing to keep on going and persist yes. that is that must be kind of like recognized and i think can keep one continuing on yes. uh, to recognize that that is something special and and you know to not give up and to you know let yourself um you know basically like you know, re remove the shrapnel, yes. patch it up the best you can, let it heal as you as you keep mo moving forward. Yes. I think I think too. Like I was I was thinking about this idea, actually, some well, somewhat unrelated, but it's 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 related. I was thinking about how we have kind of a. I mean, I, I'd like this to be the case that like we're so progressed, we won't have wars and sure. stuff like that. I, you know, who doesn't want there yeah. to be peace, right? Everybody sure. wants there to be peace. Um, but I, I did talk about this a bit in like violence in life, my like little, sure. uh, anchor recording yes. a while back now, but we, we have lost a bit of touch with like fighting, right? 
basically. Yes. Oh, I had this thought experiment too. I was mm. like, what if all wars had to be fought by wrestling? <laughs> There's like no. I think that would be great because like mm. you'd actually have to wrestle through. You'd actually have to like smell the scent of like mm. this other type of culture. What mm. foods they eat, what they eat. Mm. Anyways, there's 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 kind of a lot there that I think would be interesting to explore. Mm. But but the idea is that you know um, basically we we've lost touch with a sense of fighting. Sure. We think fighting's just like rude or bad. And sure. don't get me wrong, like you know people shouldn't just Can be punching be. Sure, each other all the time. But there's a healthy level of understanding that like we we actually are in a sense needing to fight things. Like we we do have to fight um you know certain things in ourselves, you know, and it's it is it is truly a fight. And I think to keep going in like a process of of transforming is is a type of fight itself. Um, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, for, trans basically, the only transformative philosophy has to have some sort of fight to it. Yeah. Some sort of... Well, Raymond in his book, um, yeah. with the word, I cannot say. <laughs> the, the, it's okay, no, nobody's Themos? Was it Themos? He even gave me the pronunciation in the comment. I can't remember. Oh, no. Themos. Anyway, Thymos, we'll say. <laughs> it's um, all right. Spirit. You know, spirit oh, yeah, was the yeah. alternative term. Is this notion that one of the kind of virtues that comes out in play is this notion of spiritedness, like the fight, the battle, the mm -hmm. rising to the occasion, the yeah. sort of challenge, and how so much of global capitalism today doesn't have that spiritedness. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's the last man that Nietzsche warns about, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you take away from human beings any possibility of fight or even kind of moralize ways of life that avoid fight... Something dies. There is something in human beings that only lives if it fights. And if there's no fight, then it is dead. And, uh, and we're not like talking about petty fights or something like no, that. No, 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 no. We're not talking. We're talking about noble. The yeah, noble the battle, fight. The battle. You know? The struggle. Well, the, well, part of the problem. Look, part of the problem is like people who take noble fighting seriously don't get into petty fights. Mm -hmm. Petty fights is precisely evidence of a lack of a, a spirit. Mm. You know, there's lots of arguments. There's lots of drama. Like basically, the world today is full of drama. Yeah. But it's not full of like a battle like a cosmic sort of like war against oneself like there's like this drama and there's disagreements in different things but there's not this like spirit well i mean it's like hegelian language of spirit like spiritual warfare is what religions right. talked about right. no one thought you know christianity when it talks about spiritual warfare is not talking about like getting mad because someone forgot to turn the dishwasher on <laughs> uh spiritual warfare is like hey you're in you're oh you're a human being Oh, you're you're caught in the middle of a cosmic conflict between forces of good and evil and light and darkness, and you're a sinner, but you're also like made in the image and likeness of God. Hey, you better figure this out. <laughs> uh, there's no time to worry about the dishwasher. <laughs> like that's the other thing. Like if you take seriously mm -hmm. thymos or spirit or spiritual warfare, things like the dishwasher are not ignored. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's saying they don't matter, mm -hmm. but but one becomes slow to. You just don't have time for drama. For petty things, um, because in the big scheme of things, they do not matter. So actually, funny enough, although one, of, you know, this is the irony, because most of the world's problems are a result of irony, mm -hmm. is that we're so concerned about fighting and drama and different things that we don't talk about thymos or spirit or battle. And as a result, we end up in endless personal drama. Like, because we don't have spiritual warfare, because we don't want to be violent, we want to emphasize peace, we actually end up in perpetual relationship drama. And then what's funny is you end up in a kind of drama. Drama does not transform. As we're defining drama here, drama is not transformative. Whereas spiritual warfare, let me call it that, spiritual warfare, because you can mean it theologically or you can just make, mean it Hegelian by spirit. That's true. You know, spiritual warfare is transformative. 
and basically when we talk about transformative philosophy there's a it's it's spiritual warfare is ultimately what you're talking yeah. about yeah but that's the thing like it, it's look better to have the warfare within yourself than than the the warfare yes. of shed blood between nations that's the thing you know it's like it ultimately i mean it, it's a much, this it's war, a much broader discussion add, this, but yeah. this comes out in international politics weak nations go to war not strong nations right it's the exact opposite of what people think uh-huh, uh-huh. weakening nations and weak nations go to war not strong mm-hmm. ones mm-hmm. so nations that do spiritual warfare don't end up in world war three mm-hmm. per se mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's just really important. We've talked, I feel like we've talked quite a bit over the years about the idea of like, you know, what, what ends up causing petty, petty fights or or disagreements, arguments over, you know, sort of like when you're grappling, see, this is the thing. This is why I would go back to this idea of like the wrestling nations, Hmm. right? If you grapple with, if you grapple with the questions of life, you end up grappling that with one another. There's a, there's a type of brotherhood, sisterhood, some type of, some sort of thing that bonds you in that grappling with with these questions that is wonderful and you 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 position yourself not like against one another right but like almost you know like you battle you battle these ideas and um and then you end up sort of battling yourself really ultimately like absolutely and that's good that's not a it's not a bad thing i'm not saying to like you know obviously this can get like if it's off the rails then you know you can become uh you know self-derogatory or like sure 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 Whatever. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a healthy level of sort of battling yourself. But that also means you're you're strong. You're a soldier. You're you're capable. Right? Yeah. And it's like it's it's it, there's something that's quite humbling about that, but but also empowering. Well, there there is nothing that cannot be pathological if misordered. Sure. Love, if it is not held in a healthy balance, becomes a neediness and love smothers people. Helping people can make them dependent if it's not in the right order. So likewise, this notion of needing a bit of spiritedness or fight if it is not in the right order becomes destructive. Sure, Everything sure. is destructive if it's not in the right order. Beauty without love and truth attracts people to death. Uh, you know, you know. So truth without goodness and beauty is a blunt object that ruins people. So everything is bad if it is not rightly balanced or dialecticized. Um, so likewise, when we're talking about this spiritual warfare, yes, of course, if it is not balanced within all the other virtues, it becomes a, f- a force of destruction. Um, but Thymos, uh, the spiritual warfare, like if we think of it in terms of Hegel's reason, the movement, the what I call the absolute choice, the movement from A is A to AB, from self-consciousness to reason, and we talk about spiritual warfare in reason, well, what happens then is it's not warfare. Basically, what ends up happening is most people fight within an us versus them, as opposed to making the them part of themselves. Yeah. Like you move the us versus them from something external to something internal to yourself, and you realize that the enemy, you know, the thing that you need to fight is not those, you know, Democrats, those Trumpers, those whatever, Nazi, whatever. The enemy is yourself, in a way. Uh, and your own ability, your own tendency to judge situations in accordance with your preferences, your own tendency to escape responsibility, your own tendency to not put in the work that needs to be done so that you add value to your situations as opposed to drama. Like there becomes a sort of idea that, oh, I need to be perpetually engaged in spiritual warfare because I as a human being have a tendency to enter into irony, you know, pathologies and problems that make the, that ruin things. And so you engage in a spiritual warfare to make sure that you don't fall into those things that you, that you will otherwise naturally fall into because the brain is the frenemy. 
It's going to put you in those places where you're creating drama or falling into irony. And in, in that sense, transformative philosophy is a daily choice and a daily practice to not fall into those ironies, into those pathologies, and to, um, and to say, fall into drama as opposed to spiritual warfare. Transformative philosophy will be training you to daily live in spiritual warfare as opposed to endless personal drama. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think, I think to this idea, right, of the, I think that's, that's quite right. Um, and I think like, like the, the, the real cool, um, impacts of that is like, you actually end up having much, much better relationships, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's quite, quite wonderful because you realize that like, you're not pitting, it's not being pitted against one another. It's, it's, it's like you're, there's a real, a real sense of camaraderie in, in the fact that you're all in that, that orientation towards, well, look, it's, it's, it's sort of the me versus me. And it's this, that this kind of, this, this attempt to move forward in a, in a sort of progression of thought and challenging that thought. And I always love your point, Daniel, on the idea of, you know, this idea of confidence versus certainty, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, it's like muscles, right? If, yes. if something has to be certain, it's almost like glass, very fragile, Absolutely. you know? Um, it, and, and if you have to be certain, then any type of challenge to that is just completely destabilizing absolutely um in in a shattering way now yes. your muscles get destabilized when you work when you work them out right when they take pressure right when they take repetition right or more weight um that's destabilizing too but the the beauty is that confidence is like building muscle right yes. it it can it can welcome change it can it can welcome new yes. ideas it can welcome difference and, and and it does so gladly because it knows that it actually is that's actually the means by which it is made stronger. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So so I, I always love that distinction you make with confidence versus certainty. Um and, well, confidence and, can be anti fragile, whereas certainty has to be fragile because a single doubt and it's lost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny. Like I, I think that again, it's just it's such a great point. Um, because the word confidence, it, it, it also speaks a bit more to our, our need for relation, right? The, these meetings in the Bouverian sense, right? Like confidence is like having a confidant, right? Like there's a, oh, there's something yeah. about, about, um, being able to confide and, and there's this interesting ability to sort of like be in it together in sort of like the dialogical process of exploration of ideas and thought in philosophizing in like, and that's what is transformative. It's, it's like, you are changed in this sense of exchange. Well, you're bringing, you know, on this. So again, we've been pointing to this sort of idea that it's weird. Philosophy is transformative, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to be transformative. I think the ways that philosophy are beneficial actually come out in relationships mm -hmm. where one of the reasons it's been a major problem to associate philosophy with an individual something you do alone, something that you read on your own, because you don't see the benefits of philosophy alone very much. You're, you're the same person, you think thoughts, maybe you change your thoughts, but you don't really see a, a, a very strong contrast. Whereas when you engage in not just the history of philosophy, but real philosophical thinking, and thus learn the art of ideas, the art of conversation, the art of thinking through things, then the way you relate to other people is very different. Like you have, like it is in relationship that the transformative potential and possibility of philosophy comes out. Where if you just think about, like, if you ask the question, does how does philosophy transform you as an individual? Like, individually? 
You don't see it as much. It's not so vivid. But in relationships and between philosophical individuals, like mm -hmm. when you get people together who have engaged in philosophy, yeah, yeah. that you definitely feel yes. the difference of the relationship. You definitely go, oh my goodness, philosophy matters. But mm -hmm. when you're alone and you're asking, does philosophy matter? It's kind of more difficult to tell because, mm -hmm. because, what, because you're not running against anything. Like you're just kind of the flowing river, right? So you just flow and like whatever thoughts you have, it doesn't tend to be extremely consequential. Um, except maybe in facing fear. Like I think fear and anxiety, like fear and worry is a topic that brings out the benefits of philosophical topics, which say we talk about in the turn of the world or different things. But really, like you really see the transformative power of philosophy between people and in relationships. And that would actually speak to why it is such a huge mistake and one of the reasons why philosophy has arguably been in decline socially on a social level mm -hmm. is because people have engaged in philosophy alone as a solitary act, as something you do by yourself, which is the condition in which you do not see the transformative power of philosophy. The transformative power of philosophy comes out in a gathering of people who are mutually, um, mutually committed to truth, beauty, and goodness. Well, yeah, this is, this is, this is great. I mean, that's, that's to the whole point I was saying before, like mm. about, yeah, you, you know, you quietly go to Barnes and Noble to the self-help section, you grab your book, exactly. you go back into your isolated yes. bubble or cave or whatever. And you, you know, or pod like to use, yes. <laughs> um, Raymond's, Raymond's language. Th language. It's like, and then you just, you know, you just read it there. Yep. And thing is, yeah, like we, we've been talking about this idea of the inner battle and like the spiritual yes. warfare. So yes, like in a sense, even when you're with yourself, you know, yes, in a sense, you're that flow, right? There's nothing challenging your thoughts necessarily, blah, blah, blah. And, but you do have this, this inner, inner, uh, spiritual warfare. But honestly, a lot of times, even that inner, uh, spiritual warfare has to do in some way with others, Absolutely. with relations or relationship to desire, Absolutely. which can, or, yes. you know, can involve people, objects, substances, whatever. Yes. So it, it's like, it's like there's always some sort of relational element that like in and of yourself. Yeah. You're just like, sure. it's, it's that flow. Like you're just like in that flow, you're sure. like that flowing river. Like you, you use that language for that. It's always when you're getting into the sense of relation and we could get a bit more into that, but, but, but the main idea is like, it, it is, you're right with what you're saying. It is in relation that everything becomes much more vivid and, uh, and discernible. You know, and, and, and so, yeah. Well, and that's why with the Voicecraft class, um, this, you know, in October, starting in October, is that so much of it is, in fact, sort of linking philosophy with relationships. Like with Johnny, you know, Johnny and Todd Christopher, like Cadell, you know, ours, Phenomenology of Voice, Pascal, all of these are philosophy that involves other people and interactions with other people and how you think so that you're open to other people. They're all in a relationship concept, like a, in a relational contract. Like if I were to ask you, what difference does it have on your life to be a Kantian or Hegelian or a Schopenhauer, you know, someone that believes in Schopenhauer's metaphysics or whatever, and I were to ask, what difference does that have on your individual life? Probably, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, I still eat, sleep, and whatever. Like, being a Kantian versus a Hegelian, like, what does that do? Maybe it shatters your, like, oh my gosh, there's a Numenon and we can't crop. Maybe it has a shattering effect. But what does it do to change you? It's very difficult to say. I'm not saying it doesn't at all, but it's not fair. It's kind of difficult to articulate. But when you're around people for whom have even, like, when you're, when you draw into relationship with someone who has asked the question, should yeah. I be Hegelian yeah. or Kantian, and someone who has not asked that question, yeah. the difference in the nature of the relationship is very vivid. 
yeah. and it's very clear. And and it's and it's actually like it, it's truly uh, quite. How do I say? It's 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 really quite something. Like it's it's hard to put it into words. It's it's quite an incredible experience. I yes. don't know that everybody has. I, I hope that everybody has a chance to have that experience. Well, you can if you don't do philosophy. Yeah, that's why emphasizing philosophy as an individual act is problematic. Because if you do it that way, then you don't ex you don't the transformative elements of it are, are not vivid. And so then, why would you pursue it? And so you miss out on those experiences. Uh, that's why thinking about philosophy as being transform as the vividness of the transformative of potential of philosophy coming out in relationships is very important to emphasize because that by emphasizing that you increase the likelihood that people have those experiences and they don't miss out on it. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, I think that there's always kind of um, something in the actual, also that the fact that it's, it becomes much more dialectical, like you've already got people in and of themselves doing this sort of like dialectical process of learning, unlearning, relearning, right? But then you put that together or in, you know, in, in exchange and you have this sort of exponentiating effect Absolutely. of the dialectic. Um, and it's quite, and that's where too, you've got this very amazing, spontaneous generation of ideas. Absolutely. That's always really fun to witness and to see. Absolutely. Um, and there is something quite spirit like about that. Yes. Uh, in the Hegelian sense, or even if we think theologically, because yes, there's something very, it's almost like there's like when two or more are gathered, there's like, there's, you know, so I am, am with you. And that's like, the, there's something kind of like, oh, wow, you just don't know where it's going to go. Very, very, very cool. And revives that sense of wonder. Um, because you, you, it's just so neat. You're like, you know, you're kind of talking about an idea and then somebody just suddenly shares a direction of it. And you're like, wow, I had just didn't even think about it that way and then and then suddenly it spurs on thoughts that you may have never had on that topic but it also comes from the from the time spent uh for each individual in what they're they're pursuing and reading and learning about Absolutely. in their own pursuit so like it reminds me a lot of the uh the now and book where there's the discipline of solitude and then the discipline of community mm -hmm. I, I feel like you feel it quite richly in in a philosophical engagement because because you have the solitude where you're like just individually learning about yes, X yes, or Y or yes. Z and you do that. And then when you get to have the discipline of community, he talks about this idea of, um, of a type of silence held, which I think voicecraft does a really great job too, of setting up the stage for that kind of setting the, the tone for a reverential almost experience yes. of this birthing of, of where the, this in Hegelian spirit might move the conversation. And so when, and now one talks about this too, and he talks about that creative it's a creative, it's a silence that then births creativity and what is shared and what is engaged, like how people engage with one another does yield like freshness and, uh, you know, this vitality. And so it's really beautiful because all this, all this sort of new, you know, new, all these new thoughts kind of come, it's almost like really neat to see just even the formation suddenly comes out so much more richly and ripely, you know, maybe you had this sort of like idea in and of yourself in your own research, but then you sort of talk about it and it's like, wow, this is, this is, I really need to kind of hash this out. And just by talking about it, it I suddenly like have gotten to be able to process through what I was trying to think about on this thing. And it's just really needs to be able to experience that in, in community, in this type of, 
discipline of community that now one's kind of talking about. I think this is exactly what it is. No, uh, you said a lot of very important and great things there. Um, there's something about philosophical relationships that naturally find a dialectical balance between solitude and community, yeah. being alone and working, whereas problematically when you have a history of philosophy emphasizing philosophy is an individual thing and know yourself, you know, which is true, like know thyself, but it kind of individualizes it. And if you take it that way, then it doesn't, you can make the mistake of it not being dialectical. Where is, whereas when you kind of think about like knowing thyself with thyself, becoming other, if know thyself is linked with Hegel's becoming other, then it becomes a know thyself that is only knowable with others. And that's like the critical move that Hegel will make there. Well, yeah, I think there's kind of uh, two, two um, sides of the spectrum. Um, you know, if there's there's kind of the people who do think of philosophy as merely a, a subject, like a class. Um, like in the sense of it being like, oh, it's just like philosophy 101, it's just a history, it's just like a you know, boring lecture. For people who think of philosophy that way, um, it ends up being the emphasis is on the emphasis is tends to be on community and not on solitude. Yes. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum, uh, which would be where it's um, philosophize in your isolation. You know, where it's just it, the emphasis is on solitude. And you know, I think that's why Nowen makes such a great point that like these things must kind of come together. We need to allow them to meet. Well, and, and, and so and so it's like that's where I think a type of transformative philosophy is doing just that. Where you you have the you bring it together the solitude and the, and the community. Well, you, what transformative philosophy will have you do is think in terms of how do I bring life to people? Um, like how do I bring life to people? Not just simply say, oh, there's life when people are around. Yeah. No, there might just be drama. Oh, there's life when I'm by myself. Oh, well, maybe you're just afraid to encounter other people. The question you ask is how do I bring life? to people. And philosophical individuals, if you will, ask that question, how do we bring life to one another? And so you do the so you do work alone so that when you're with people you have something to bring there. Because you want to help bring life. You want there to be life. So there's this kind of individuals do their work, but for the sake of the other. Not to just kind of like know themselves and have some sort of like solid identity, but for the sake it becomes the how what is the art of life? How do we bring life to one another? And Transformative philosophy is, takes that very, very seriously. Um, you brought up the Holy Spirit and the notion that when two or more gather, I think it's a very important idea. Because when you're with philosophical individuals, not only does the conversation have a life to it and a spark to it, it can go on for hours and hours, there tends to be something about philosophy that makes you see life as alive, as part of a bigger story. And so the people, they're, they're more likely to be creative, to tell jokes, to be funny, to have adventures, to have plans, to be working. Oh, I just did this painting. Like, philosophical individual, it's not by chance that a lot of artists are philo philosophical and a lot of philosophers are also creative, and it's not by chance they're always a working or something, or that they're open, or that they, 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 they have a good sense of humor, and that they're witty. All these things go together, because there's, because there's something about philosophy that brings all of these things. Philosophy doesn't just bring, philosophy doesn't just bring, I, Philosophy doesn't just bring philosophical ideas. It brings with it an entire disposition to life that is fuller. And so when you engage in philosophical relationships, they it's like an entirely different world. And, and you see that philosophy in that sense can change the world. That it in fact can introduce a new kind of world. That it can be transformative. But it is in community and relationship that that comes out. 
And so when you think of philosophy as a solitary act, you don't get that bringing in of a new horizon, a new way of being doesn't really come out. And so it's hard to see how philosophy is transformative. But when you have, and I think the internet today is making this more possible because it's easier to connect people who have done the philosophical work, whereas before it was more difficult to find that one out of, you know, a thousand people that did it. Like, you know, if if 5% of the world engages in philosophy in the way we're talking about it, that is millions of people, but in a random distribution, it would be difficult to encounter them. Whereas where the internet can make it possible now for people to come together, which means that it becomes easier to see how philosophy is transformative. Whereas before, it would have been much more difficult to see how it is transformative, where the more visual and vivid it becomes to see the transformative nature of philosophy, it gives me hope that more and more people will want to do it that more and more people will want to engage with it because there's an entirely different way that people are and they carry themselves and they engage and they do conversation and, and, and how they are in their very being that comes out in community that otherwise doesn't come out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was, I was, yeah, I was just like, I was, there, there's something about like, sorry, this, there's something about being able to really kind of relish in your own existence in existence itself that's really important i think i think sometimes there's such a almost apologetic nature like even if people go to the grocery store and like somebody's standing in the aisle and it's just like everyone's like, like oh sorry 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 i'm like taking up space it's just like sorry i exist sorry i'm breathing yes. it's like don't apologize it's all right you know it's it's just very interesting we i think i wonder if we also have become like more like, like, because the private and public spaces have become more inverted uh, with, with technologies that we, we, there is almost more of an apology for being like phenomenologically present. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so um, I think, I think that, yeah, being able to, to have this sort of real, it's like you, you do yourself a favor actually by just allowing yourself to um, cultivate this cultivate your your own ability to philosophize and to transform in that process and also that's that's you also give that favor to to those you are engaging with as well well i mean one of the things that i always think about is that very weird verse or line where i think in john maybe 15 something where jesus says something like if i would have never come you would have never known that you were sinners you would have never it's like really weird because then you're kind of like oh well, maybe it'd been better off if Jesus didn't come because we wouldn't have known, right? Well, I think it becomes easier to understand what's going on there because it's similar with philosophy. Like, what would have been better? You know, there's always this tension of look at these, you know, maybe philosophy just makes you miserable, right? There's a lot of people who aren't philosophical and they seem to, they seem to be happy, right? You know, they seem to be getting by and maybe philosophy doesn't. So it's kind of weird. Well, the thing is, if Jesus doesn't come, then there can be no, there can be no community. There can be no Holy Spirit. But the possibility of the Holy Spirit like coming where two or more gathered, it's in community that you see why it's better that Jesus came versus not. Like when you're alone, it's kind of like, well, maybe it'd be better if Jesus didn't come because then I could just be, a, you know, one of the one of the members of the community that's normal and part of the everydayness and not have to worry about it. And maybe that would be better. Well, when you gather with where two or more are gathered, then that's where the Holy Spirit... There is no possibility of the Holy Spirit unless Jesus comes to earth, right? Because the Holy Spirit is released at Calvary when Jesus dies and it's his breath, right? Well, likewise, there's no possibility of philosophical community unless there is the individual existential possibility and difficulty of philosophy. 
But it is precisely because of that existential anxiety that it is possible to have this new type of community. But it has to come to the place of that community. The community has to form, which then means engaging in the practices of community, which, you know, voicecraft is focused on. And it is in those kind of places like voicecraft that you see why philosophy is transformative. But if you don't enter into those communities, you don't see it. It doesn't come out. It is not so vivid. So the importance of things like what voicecraft does is, is, is just paramount. Yes, absolutely. Looking forward to everybody crafting their voice. Yes, absolutely. October 10th, yes. I think there's uh, Voicecraft. You can you can find information there. I'm extremely grateful for that community. Thank uh, what everyone Adlin. does, Mr. Adlin and Tyler and Adrian, okay. you know, all the different people uh, who I appreciate very much. And um, again, I, the, the, the how philosophy is transformative comes out with others. And so entering into a space and learning the art of engaging in philosophy with others and with oneself to help become other, as Hegel will describe, it unleashes that spirit that we've been getting at. And it's better to live a spirited life than not. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the journey. You can visit voicecraft.io to find out more about this project, the network, the mailing list, opportunities to participate, upcoming courses in the Voicecraft Academy, as well as access the show notes for this episode at voicecraft.io. And thank you as always to the patrons of the podcast at patreon.com voicecraft. That's where you can pledge a small amount each month to support this work. And if you can't support the podcast in that way, but you value this content and appreciate its values and purpose, then leave a review or share it to someone else you think will. All right. Until next time. Thank you for being here.